Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, good morning. Fred Blackwell here. I'm the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. It's really a pleasure uh, to be with you all today as we head into uh, the afternoon. Uh, I'm the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, like I said, uh, which is dedicated to creating a Bay Area where everyone can find a good job, live in a safe and affordable home, and exercise their political voice, uh, regardless of their race or their zip code. Our program today is brought to you by the San Francisco Foundation's Bay Area Leads Fund. So thank you to all of the donors who have made contributions to that uh, fund. And we appreciate you considering uh, donating to the Commonwealth Club. Uh, you can do so at the website, which is uh, commonwealthclub.org. Uh, for Q&A, uh, which we will get to probably towards the end of the program, uh, please enter your questions in the chat uh, section of this live stream. And like I said, we will get to them and integrate them uh, into our conversation. Uh, but now let me get to it. Um, it is really my pleasure today to introduce today's program, which is Building an Inclusive Recovery Across the Bay Area. Uh, our region, like many others across the country, uh, has really been experiencing the same thing that others have. Um, whether it's the direct impacts of the, uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, from a health point of view uh, or the economic impacts associated with sheltering in place and social distancing, uh, we have seen that uh, low-income communities, communities of color, uh, Black, Latinx, low-wage workers, and particularly uh, uh, undocumented workers have really borne the brunt of the negative impacts associated uh, with the past year. Uh, and that is on top of being really uh, locked out of opportunity and experiencing uh, fragility uh, up until that point. Uh, and so when we think about the region's recovery and all the conversations uh, about economic recovery that we're currently seeing nationwide and in the region, the question is, how do we make sure uh, that the communities that uh, we're experiencing uh, some of the negative impacts associated with our economy beforehand uh, are really at the forefront of our thinking and our strategies uh, as we think about recovery. And so that's what uh, today's discussion uh, is really about. We have three great uh, panelists today to uh, be in dialogue with one another uh, and with me uh, to talk about this stuff. Um, first, I want to introduce uh, Tamika Moss. Uh, Tamika is nationally and uh, locally recognized as a dynamic nonprofit and public sector leader with experience in housing, public policy, uh, and community development. She is the founder and CEO of All Home, an organization dedicated to finding regional solutions uh, to the homelessness and housing crisis here in the Bay Area. Before establishing All Home, Tamika was CEO of Hamilton uh, Families, a San Francisco organization offering uh, emergency, transitional, and permanent housing. Uh, for families experiencing homelessness, uh, and she has had uh, careers working on both sides of the bay in the public sector uh, as well, uh, most recently as Chief of Staff to Mayor Libby Schack. Uh, welcome, Tamika. Uh, next, uh, Chris Iglesias. Uh, Chris is a visionary leader who has dedicated his career to executing a social equity agenda through innovative and strategic public-private partnerships. Uh, he is now the CEO of the Unity Council, uh, he, which is one of the uh, most vital East Oakland-focused community uh, assets and focused uh, place-based organizations uh, really operating in the, 
the Fruitvale District and beyond. Uh, the Union Council is devoting is devoted to promoting uh, and improving quality of life for residents in the Oakland's uh, Fruitvale District, which is the largest Latinx neighborhood in the Bay Area. Chris serves on a variety of boards, uh, provides all kinds of leadership roles, uh, and like myself and Tamika, uh, has spent a lot of time in local government, uh, particularly in San Francisco. Uh, welcome, Chris. Uh, last, uh, Jamila Henderson works on the Equitable Recovery Team at PolicyLink, focusing on the Bay Area Equity Atlas and the use of data uh, to advance equity and inclusion. Prior to joining PolicyLink, Jamila was a Senior Policy Analyst at the John Gardner uh, Center for Youth and Their Communities at Stanford University, uh, where she analyzed education data, educational data uh, for students facing barriers to high school graduation. Uh, she has also uh, worked as a data analyst at the, at the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, which is a planning agency in Boston, uh, and we won't hurt, hold, hold those uh, Boston roots against her. Uh, Jamila, uh, welcome. So, Jamila, uh, I want to turn it over to you to start so that we can all get grounded in some data and uh, we know how uh, great the Equity Atlas is. So I'm going to turn it over to you first, and then uh, Chris and Tamika will engage you uh, after that part of the presentation. But again, uh, welcome, everyone, and looking forward to the conversation. Great. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you for that introduction, Fred. It's great to be here. So again, I'm Jamila Henderson. I'm a senior associate at PolicyLink, which is a national research and action institute advancing racial and economic equity by lifting up what works. I will be sharing some findings from our research to help inform local recovery efforts that are focused on advancing racial and economic equity. The data that I'll be sharing today is really a snapshot of data that we've been analyzing during the pandemic, as well as data from the Bay Area Equity Atlas, which is an online data resource for tracking and measuring and making the case for inclusive growth and prosperity. And it was developed through a partnership of the San Francisco Foundation, PolicyLink, and the Equity Research Institute at USC. So I'm just going to jump right in to the data. Uh, so what became clear early on during the pandemic was that low-income communities of color in the Bay Area and elsewhere uh, were really hardest hit. So neighborhoods with some of the highest rates of COVID-19 infections, which is this map here on the left, uh, were dis or are disproportionately in Latinx neighborhoods. With the map on the right, you can see the share of people of color by neighborhood and how that tracks uh, with COVID-19 infection rates. And the higher concentrations are in the, the deeper shaded areas um, on both of the maps. So it's been an unequal pandemic, as many of us are aware, as we'll see on this next slide. Some of us can work from home, but others, their jobs as essential workers really place them in the public and they are they are at far greater risk of exposure to the virus. And we see this play out by race because people of color are more concentrated in essential occupations, many of which tend to be lower wage jobs. And we know that this stems from a whole host of reasons, including historical uh, factors like racial segregation and policies that barred people of color and women from educational opportunities and from employment advancements. So what we're looking at here, or what we can see here is that 
Latinx and Black workers are more likely to work in essential occupations, so grocery store workers, healthcare workers, bus drivers, janitors, and that this has really contributed to racial inequities in infection and mortality rates, similar to what we saw in the previous slide. Um, and this is uh, an issue that's happening across the region. Okay, so in this next slide, we really see the flip side of this. Uh, black workers across the state have also suffered the greatest uh, job losses. A much larger share of black workers, 42%, filed for unemployment insurance during the pandemic, which was the highest of any group. Taking a step back with this next one and looking at uh, baseline measures of economic security before the pandemic, and this is for renters uh, specifically, we see that renters of color, especially women, were more likely to be housing insecure. So before the pandemic, well over half of Black women renters and Latina renters in the Bay Area were economically insecure and rent burdened. So they really were paying uh, more than is reasonable for housing costs. And so these residents in particular are at risk of eviction and of accumulating rent debt if they've lost uh, jobs um, or income during the pandemic. And expanding on that in this next slide, uh, another real concern is homelessness. As renters may begin to face evictions this summer as eviction moratoria are set to expire. So this again is another pre-pandemic indicator. And we can see that uh, black residents represented 29% of people experiencing homelessness in the region, but black residents only account for 6% of Bay Area residents. So black residents are overrepresented among individuals experiencing homelessness based on these point in time counts. And so this gives us a sense of uh, baseline economic security before the pandemic and the, the racial inequities that already existed. So the next data point uh, shows employment changes by wage level. The deeper blue bar is showing employment levels for low-wage workers in October of last year compared to pre-pandemic levels. And then the, the lightest bar shows the change in employment levels for higher-wage workers. And really the takeaway here is that in most of the nine counties in the region, low-wage workers experienced the largest declines in employment. Uh, San Francisco was the exception. Uh, their middle-wage workers saw the largest decline. And then here, um, so this next graphic shows characteristics of gig workers. There was a, a new survey conducted of gig workers in San Francisco uh, last year, last spring, and it showed that these workers are largely people of color uh, and immigrants. And for most, this work is not a gig. Many work full time and are economically vulnerable. 45% said they did not have the means to cover a $400 emergency. And this is largely due to uh, their classification as independent contractors as, op as opposed to employees. Uh, as contractors, they may lack key employment rights like a minimum wage, health insurance, paid sick leave, uh, and disability insurance. And then thinking about uh, how not only workers, but how households have been affected and particularly renters, because we know that that's a group that's usually more vulnerable. We've learned that many are at risk of eviction and indebtedness because they have faced job and income losses during the pandemic and are behind on rent and accumulating rent debt. 
So working with local tenants' rights advocates, we estimated the number and share of uh, renter households that are at risk of eviction, and then the amount of rent debt that they are facing. And what we found was that an estimated 58,000 households are behind on rent in the San Francisco region, and that they collectively owe over $304 million in rent debt. And how this breaks down by household is about $5,300 per household that is behind. Um, and looking at the pie charts here, uh, as we've seen in earlier slides, the economic fallout of the pandemic has disproportionately fallen on the groups who were already uh, economically vulnerable, people of color, low-income renters who've, ex who've experienced these pandemic-related job and income losses. And then in this last data slide here, we also see uh, racial inequities in who is going without as measured by the share of adults who sometimes or often do not have enough to eat. Um, so you see that 24% of Black adults and 22% of Latinx adults are food insecure, and that it's a much uh, lower likelihood among other households. So looking at data from an equity perspective, broken down by race, uh, but also by gender and income, geography really reveals how various groups have experienced the pandemic. And what is really clear is the larger impact on people of color, on women, especially women of color, uh, on people with lower incomes. And so what this really tells us is that we can't be race neutral, gender, income neutral, when crafting solutions, if our recovery is going to be an equitable one that reaches those in need and supports them throughout this crisis. Uh, so my contact information is on the last slide if you want to reach out. Um, I will leave it there so that there is plenty of time to hear from our panelists, but I would encourage you to check out the Bay Area Equity Atlas, uh, which includes recent analyses, but also pre-pandemic indicators uh, and policies uh, to advance racial and economic equity. Thank you. Thank you, Jamila. Um, for that uh, really great uh, framing. And I'll invite uh, Tamika and Chris to uh, come on camera with us uh, now. Uh, and for the two of you, um, just really two questions. One is kind of, what's your reaction to what we just saw and what Jamila just laid out to us? Uh, and does it line up with what you are kind of seeing in the communities that you're working in and the issues that you're working on? Uh, maybe I'll start with you, Tamika. Well, thank you for the question, Fred, and thanks for hosting us this afternoon. It's great to see everyone. Uh, Jamila, it's so important to set the stage with data. I think it situates everyone in understanding just how significant these challenges are and have been in the community. Um, so to your first question, Fred, does the data sort of uh, align with what we're seeing in community? And the answer is yes. Um, I, I think it is helpful to see the data points to confirm what in fact is going on in, in communities where pre-pandemic um, folks were, we had more than 800,000 individuals who were earning less than $35,000 a year uh, and were precariously housed and severely rent burdened. And so it is no surprise to me that the data reinforces these realities for our most vulnerable residents and from my perspective, it's important for us to take step one in the knowing, but
But I think that this next step is the doing. Um, if we're going to experience an equitable recovery, we can't continue to do the same things we were doing um, pre-pandemic. We actually have to reimagine a different future where we're making different policy decisions based on that data, based on the disproportionate and historic impacts that these realities have had on our communities of color, as well as our most um, our lowest wage workers, and do something different. So I'm encouraged by the data. I think it gives folks permission, frankly, to exercise their political and public will differently so that we can begin to apply our solutions um, in ways that actually show up on the ground. So I'm encouraged by the data, and I think it gives us a platform to have a different kind of conversation. Um, So maybe I'll leave it there. I don't know if you want want us to answer both questions at the same time, but... uh, but that, that's my reaction to the data. Thanks, Fred. Thanks, Tamika. And um, Fred, first of all, thank you for hosting us today. Um, thanks to Gloria Duffy uh, at the Commonwealth Club, Dr. Gloria Duffy and, and George and the team for uh, hosting this. We really appreciate this platform. Um, Jamila, thank you for the data. Um, it's spot on. We see it every day. Um, but I think what gets lost is that it is so bad. People don't realize like what Jamila just said, right? And how what what that looks like in real time, right? I mean, the numbers, the around African American job loss, you know, that how bad the pandemic has been to the subgroups like uh, Black women, Latino women. I mean, they've just been completely devastated by this pandemic. And I, you know, the data is very very powerful, but I still I, I just don't think people realize how bad it is, right? So I think that's hopefully what we will be able to kind of really paint that picture today. Um, I think the other thing that is not mentioned is just not only do we have the pandemic, but we also had the civil unrest, right? George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and that just kind of layers on these communities that we're, we're, we're going to be talking about today. So I think, you know, how do we kind of make, how do we make sense out of this data, right? And we mentioned food insecurity, right? And I think food insecurity is something that we all kind of knew was there, but not at the level that any of us. Anticipated, and I'll just give you one real fast example. Part of the pandemic, just in our normal operations, we would probably serve about a thousand, maybe twelve hundred uh, meals a day to children in Head Start, to seniors, and then some of the school-based programs, right? So, th- but those were like to individual kids, right? Now, on March twentieth or March sixteenth, twenty twenty, when that shelter-in-place started, those individuals weren't receiving food anymore. But not only that, but now it's like you have to look at that whole family. So that we were feeding one child, now it's that child. So instead of going, you know, for a thousand or twelve hundred people needed food, now it's that whole family. So you multiply that by five or six. So all all, all of a sudden you're looking at like six, seven thousand people, family that need food. Right. And I think that you know, we're just one organization. So that's just one example of how fast that that pandemic hit folks and the need was immediately immediate. So I think, yes, the data really frames it. And I think, um, but I want to make sure that people understand the, the magnitude of that data. When you really look at those numbers, it's, it's astonishing and it's scary. And we have a lot of work to do and I'll pause there for today. Thanks, Chris. Uh, I want to stick with you for a moment, uh, Chris, and you talking about the, the magnitude of the impact of what we've seen. Um, you know, at the same time that we've experienced that, and like you've highlighted, we've seen like a kind of exponential rise in the need for things like just basic stuff, food, 
shelter, clothing, that kind of stuff, and even just cash aid. Um, we also are hearing a lot of more discussion and discourse about recovery. Uh, you know, all our local jurisdictions, a lot of them have developed local economic recovery plans. I know we are engaged with you all and others on thinking about what an equitable regional recovery uh, looks like. We're on the brink of kind of relaxing mass mandates and all that kind of stuff. Um, but at the same time, and hearing you talk, Chris, and um, I've heard uh, others talk about it as well, it doesn't necessarily feel like we are in an actual recovery. Uh, it isn't like the basic needs that you referred to around food, shelter, and clothing have magically gone away. I guess the question is, are we prematurely talking about recovery? Um, what's your take on that? Um, how do we balance both kind of planning for recovery and making sure that uh, basic needs are still being met because they're still there? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Fred. And, you know, we are all, you know, excited about the potential recovery, to be talking about it, maybe not wearing masks, you know, all those kinds of things. You know, great, great, yes. You know, stock market's doing well. People want to get out. You know, it's been a long time. And so we completely understand that. But I think um, th the, the pandemic and everything else was, was hit these communities so hard that, you know, we're, we're still not there. We're still dealing in the basics, right? We, we're still in the basics. We're still, food is still a major issue. I think right now, just looking at our numbers, we're serving a, a close to almost 8,000 meals uh, a week still, right? And, we, and we're just one organization. We're not talking about Tribe. We're not talking about what's happening at the Alameda County Food Bank, all these other organizations that have really stepped up. So there is a huge basic need that continues. Um, we talked about rent a little bit, right? That is brewing as well. Right, you know the rent relief. I think what what happens when you when you're looking at a lot of the essential workers, which is many of the folks that we work with, including our own staff, is that they've fallen so far behind. Right, a lot of them were able to work, but a lot of them didn't. A lot of it's kind of in and out of jobs, right? Because they start working again, all of a sudden they shut it down, and and they're out of the they're out of the market again, men and women. So I think there's there really has to be a lot of emphasis, a lot of infrastructure to help continue to stabilize these communities, right? And I think what we've seen with the pandemic is, we don't, you know, we already we were already in trouble. Like we were already in difficult times, like Tamika is naughty, prior to the pandemic, right? Now, what I think the pandemic revealed is like, it just kind of ripped the wound off the, these inequalities, right? And, um, and I, for whatever reason, I always envision a thigh. We always knew that, like the country, you know, we're, we're walking around, we're moving, but our thigh is damaged, but it was covered by band-aids, right? So the pandemic kind of ripped it halfway off and we're like, whoa, this thigh is really bad. We got to fix this thigh. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to move forward. Civil unrest completely ripped it off. Now the inequalities are so stark that you have to look at them. You have to address them. And the thing is, now we're all connected because as... Um, policy link to really call it the knowledge economy workers those of us that could stay at home during the pandemic right somebody was working somebody was caring in the economy and those are the, those were the those are the essential workers that are still doing that right that haven't been able to stay at home and i think it just shows how connected we are we have to address this thigh now in order for us to move forward so i think um yes we, we want the recovery but at the same time we have some serious fundamental challenges ahead of how about you, Tamika? Is the recovery conversation premature? 
Um, I don't think it's premature. I think it's necessary um, because we, we don't want to be left, left behind again. Um, but Fred, you said something recently that really stuck with me, which is we are actually trying to imagine a future for the Bay Area that has never existed. So when we think about a recovery, we actually don't know what it looks like for uh, extremely low income wage earners and black and indigenous and brown communities to actually have a stable foothold in the Bay Area where they are thriving, where they are able to pay their rent and, um, you know, have access to good schools for their children. There are so many um, folks who don't know that reality. So in my opinion, when we think about an equitable recovery, we have to think about customizing that recovery to meet people where they are. There are so many folks that are still just now getting back into the, the workforce. We've been at All Home, we've been working both um, with the state as well as with local jurisdictions on, a, on the rental assistance um, programs that are providing rental assistance um, to households throughout the state and the Bay Area from the, from the stimulus funds that we're getting from the federal government. And when we look at the data, we know that 85% of the households are um, extremely low income households. They're communities of color who are accessing those programs. And we haven't even began to get those resources into the hands of the communities, zip codes and neighborhoods that need them the most. So in my, when I think about an equitable recovery, I think about time. It takes time to actually customize our best intentions, policies and solutions to the people who need it the most. It also takes discipline. We can't do a peanut butter effect where we're like, oh, we have to help everybody a little bit. If we actually really understood what the conditions are for the folks experiencing this crisis, both on the health side and the economic side, and customize those interventions to meet people where they are, that's when you begin to see population-related rela impacts in an equitable recovery. So from my perspective, I think Chris is right. We, we can't even fathom the magnitude and impact that this, this pandemic and its subsequent impacts are having on our communities. And therefore, we need time to really target our interventions appropriately so that we have a baseline that actually builds our bottom up and allows everyone to uh, be be building toward the same thing. And I, and I think that that was so uneven uh, pre-pandemic, that it, it's going to require a great deal of attention as we move forward. You know, over the last year, um, we've really, I think, been reintroduced to the important role of government uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, we've seen, from a health point of view, the importance of getting good, coordinated information and action from the federal level, the state level. We've seen how important it was for not only for the county health agencies to do their thing, but to coordinate with one another when it comes to uh, the region. We've seen the importance of the government in responding to the economic crisis with various rounds of uh, stimulus uh, uh, activity, relief uh, work that's happening. Um, but as we know, um, it is not always super easy to navigate all of that and make sure that it hits our 
uh, communities in the right way. What can you all give us some insight into what it has taken uh, for in your respective areas of work to really kind of capitalize on the um, federal, state, local resources that have been coming uh, to community and give us a little bit of a snapshot into what you think it will take uh, for future rounds of federal and state help to really hit the ground in a way that kind of uh, advances equity in our communities. Well, may maybe I'll take a stab at that first. Uh, it's such an important question, Fred. Um, you know, I think for the first time in decades, we have an actual partner in the federal government. Um, the federal government has been disinvesting in housing investments for at least 25 years throughout the, the country. And particularly, those impacts have been devastating, I think, for the state of California and the Bay Area. So to see uh, an administration who understands the importance of um, universal vouchers, who understands how uh, figuring out how to address homelessness from a systemic level is going to help everyone who is experiencing that crisis across our country. This is an unprecedented partnership. So aside from the resources that are actually coming into communities, I think we need to make sure that we are aligning the federal government on the right interventions that are going to yield the kinds of outcomes that we're looking for in our community. So I, I you know, we at, at All Helm have been working on a regional plan to try to reduce unsheltered homelessness by 75% over the next three years. We are able to start to set goals like that because we have the state, federal, and local governments working in partnership with our private sector partners, with our philanthropic partners. I'm of the belief that it takes all of us, every single one, all branches of government, every single one of, uh, of those stakeholder groups to really come together around solutions that can scale and have the impact that we want. So I'm encouraged by the fact that we have the federal government and other parts of our government um, stepping up. But I'm also, you know, having a, a realization that we have had state-sanctioned harms that have been done to our most impacted communities. And folks don't trust government. They don't believe that they have their best interests in mind, and it's evidenced by our history. And so I think we have to really work deeply with our Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities, our immigrant communities, to help them understand that these can be assets that we can help them access, that the community-based organizations like Chris's, that others can really help them navigate some of these systems and structures so that they can actually benefit from what government has to offer. You know, as much as I, you know, I have worked in the public sector, as have both of you, we know that if we want to see solutions at scale, government has to be at the table. So how do we acknowledge the harms that have been done to communities by government and reconcile those so that we can have some true partnership in seeing some of those things change? Um. First of all, Tamika, thank you for covering the federal government. I think that's that's really, really important. I think um, I'll kind of keep it a little bit more local uh, to start. And But, you know, when, when again, when the shelter in place hit last March, um, thank goodness for our philanthropic partners, um, Stupski, Crankstart, Hellman, San Francisco Foundation, who, you know, you guys are agile. You're able to 
moved quickly and you immediately, you know, basically started sending infusions of support, right? And it was basically, you're like, do what you got to do. You know what you have to do. And a lot of it was right out the door, food, with the, so food, uh, food, rental support, keep the people in their homes. You know, that was like initial. And that was quick. That's a very, very powerful tool that the Bay Area has to be able to like have those kind of organizations that, that can do that. Having said that, you know, I think, you know, this, the pandemic hit government hard too. I mean, I think everybody was just caught off guard, like how, how this thing was hitting. And, you know, for the first, you know, March, April, May, it was a complete, you know, S show out here, right? We started seeing infection rates go up. We started, we couldn't get people tested. We could like, who's doing contact tracing? We just couldn't, can get any traction. And I'm not, this isn't a criticism of, of government. It's just like, that was what's happening, right? They were trying to figure out how to respond too. And I think it took a little while to, to kind of get us in sync. Um, and there's still challenges, right? I mean, we've been having really hard conversations with primarily the county because that's where the public health sits. It is a public health crisis, right? So we're putting enormous amounts of pressure on them. Um, but I think, um, you know, we've had, uh, you know, the other thing that's happening now is like enormous amount of resources are coming into the state from the feds, you know, the governor was here last week talking about his surplus budget and how he plans to spend it. So we see all this money kind of floating around us, right? And it's, for those of us who've been on the ground, if we've been, feel like it's been in a war, that's like ammunition. How is that ammunition going to hit us, right? And that makes me nervous because, you know, 23 years in government, we know how that works. You guys know how it works. They get access to money, you know, they, they know how to get it. They know how to, you know, slice it and dice it and put it in their, you know, to, to take care of themselves. And this is not the time for that. This is the time to get those resources into the communities, most of them, and they know exactly who those, where those communities are. They know the streets, they know by blocks, you know, they, they know how hard this pandemic hits. And that's what I'm concerned about, right? How is it, like, like to make it say, how are, how are they gonna be transparent? How are they gonna move it, right? We've had some, you know, really difficult supervisors, I mean, conversation with some of these elected, and, you know, they'll tell us, you know, because, you know, we're saying, we think you need to change the contracting process, forget RFPs, you need to do like sole source contract, get, you, you know who you need to, you know, just get us under contract and get that capital out, you know? And they're like, oh, you know, whoa, that, you're, making, you're making me uncomfortable. Well, my answer is like, you know, how does the mom feel, you know, to balance a 30 pound box of grocery on her stroller, right? You know, like a little shade with a kid inside and then walk 10 blocks home. That She's very uncomfortable, right? We, 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 that's what we're seeing every day. That's what we just saw, you know, a couple of days ago. And I think, you know, no, none of our leaders in, in the community should feel comfortable with what they're seeing, right? And so I think as this capital comes in, there, it just like Tamika said, we can't even really imagine how government needs to work, right? And I think they're having a tough time trying to imagine how they need to work. But um, it, it, it just has to be a different approach. There must be much more deeper investments in these communities. But, you know, it, it, you have to be able to step up and meet that moment, which that moment is now. And that's what I think is really going to challenge our, 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 local, our local leaders. In a lot of, I'll pause there for a second. Fred, I wonder if I could just piggyback on, on one point that Chris mentioned that I think is important for, oh, I'm so sorry. I just wanted to amplify the point Chris was making around how flexible we need to be to make sure that, that resources are getting directly to the people that need them. When we saw uh, the governor in his office do home key, project home key and room key, where they were able to disperse resources, bring unhoused people inside, 
They brought more than 6,000 folks inside in Home Key within six months, 15,000 folks indoors uh, within nine months. Chris's point around the bureaucratic, regulatory, administrative barriers that have impeded our progress of acting quickly, acting, acting urgently, and getting the dollars into the hands of our partners who are administering the services and into the residents' hands who need the money, we know how to do it now. We've shown um, our entire state and, frankly, the nation how you can expedite and deliver quickly if you relax the appropriate um, uh, barriers that have impeded us from doing that in the past. So I just wanted to amplify that point. I think we have some precedent now to demonstrate how quickly we can act if, as Chris said, we, we um, take advantage of this moment. Thank you. Jamil, I want to get you in on this question, and then we've got questions coming in fast and furious from the audience. So after that, I'm going to pivot there. Great. Uh, thank you, Tamika and Chris, for your expertise on this. I just want to lift up a uh, resource, uh, 10 Priorities for Advancing Racial Equity Through the American Rescue Plan. So it's a guide for city and county policymakers, and you can find it on Policy Link, Policy Link's website. So this is work of my colleagues, and it basically, basically includes strategies for deploying uh, the American Rescue Plan funds equitably, efficiently, and strategically. And then it also lays out a framework for uh, equitable decision-making around the spending and investments, and also prompts to help local leaders ask some of those hard questions around addressing, addressing racial equities um, or racial inequity. So just wanted to lift that up again, 10 priorities for advancing racial equity through the American Rescue Plan. Got it. Jamila, I'm going to stick with you for a minute. There are a couple of questions from the audience about uh, kind of aspirational uh, data that folks would like to see and uh, pieces that they didn't see in your presentation. One has to do with seniors. Do we know anything about kind of what the Bay Area stats are on seniors and particularly seniors of color? Uh, and then the other question is, will we be able to at some point have this kind of data available on kind of vaccination uptake and rates? Uh, both good questions. So we do, we haven't been looking specifically at seniors, but we know that that is a group that is um, affected and, and vulnerable. Um, and that's something that we can um, look at and provide. And so we'd be happy to do that and can speak with folks about that. And then around vaccination, vaccinations, I know that that's something that's rolling out uh, with different counties. And so we have been working with uh, specific counties around that data. I know with Contra Costa County, um, not something that we have comprehensively uh, across all of the nine counties in the region. Um, but um, as long as those counties are are looking into that data and have it available, it's something that we can house and look at collectively uh, for the region. All right, thank you. A um, few questions here kind of about new well, or just emerging policy strategies and things like that and how they might uh, impact these issues. Um, one question about the role of universal basic income. What are your thoughts on that? Are you optimistic about that? We've seen various local efforts. We've seen, uh, frankly, some of the national and federal stuff has rolled out kind of like universal basic income. What do you think? I think it's great. 
Look, I think that we have a math problem across this region where people are not earning enough money to pay their bills. We have, uh, you know, children going hungry. We have folks experiencing homelessness. So cash transfers and universal basic income are important um, financial supports that begin to make the social safety net less porous. One of the other pieces I really appreciate about it is that we don't dictate how people should spend their money. We now, we have had this pejorative, I think, uh, perspective that poor folks don't know how to take care of themselves and actualize their own um, security. When the Stockton study and many others, Jamila probably has more data on this than I do, indicate that folks actually know how to take care of themselves. They, they stay housed when they have access to benefits or to cash. Um, we saw that through the pandemic when the very first stimulus checks came out to communities, we saw a much less, uh, a, a lower um, amount of folks actually being evicted from their, from their homes. So Universal basic income, I think, is or guaranteed income is an important support. It needs to be paired with deeply affordable housing and, and access to health care and child supports that, that actually help communities stabilize and thrive. But I think as a policy, it's, it's so encouraging to see the national or the um, the economic security project and others across this country who have been, you know, championing cash benefits and this kind of uh, social safety net uh, component for our communities. And I'm, I'm thrilled that it's, it's catching so much momentum. Chris, anything to add there? I would second that. And I think, you know, at this point, we just need any tools possible. And this is like, that is a very, very powerful tool that's already been piloted that we could, I think we could roll out as part of these discussions, as part of this recovery. Um, so, you know, the more powerful the tool, and that, that to me is a very powerful one that I think we need to take advantage of. Another policy issue here. What are the odds of expanding the statewide eviction moratorium beyond June? Well, I mean, I, I think it goes to your earlier question, Fred, about um, what kind of recovery are we in? Because we know the California Budget and Policy Center, all of Jamila's data indicate that our most uh, vulnerable workers in our economy had not yet recovered in this pandemic. We know that they're still having a rearage and other indebtedness as they begin to get back to work. So we are advocating as, as hard as we can to our state policymakers to extend the eviction moratorium and its protections to, as I said earlier, give time for the money to get into the hands of the people who need it. The, the um, rental assistance program, both at the state and the local levels across the region, are just now getting underway. We don't know how much time it's going to take, but we know that June 30th is not enough. So I encourage everyone watching today to get involved and understand how important it is to extend those moratoriums. Otherwise, the, the moratorium. Otherwise, I do believe we're going to see a rash of evictions happening across uh, our region um, faster than we can, um, we can accommodate. Chris, I know for you um, in the Unity Council, child care is something that you're deeply involved in. What's the role that you see of really having adequate, well-funded, high-quality child care in the recovery? Well, I think that's that is uh, a, a big component of, of this recovery. It's, I think it's something that we're we're seeing many of the challenges right now. I mean, we are 
all of our Head Start centers are open, not at full capacity, but even like as I speak right now, we I think we have like 26 children downstairs. Um, so it is allowing more folks to go back. But I think at the same time, it's also um, compounding the problem because many of the folks, like many of our staff also have children, right? And they've been able to care for them at home during, this, during the pandemic. And now they're, as they come back to work, the burden is being put back on them on how do they, how do they address that? So I think it, it, it is um, gonna be, I think, a, an opportunity for us to be creative on how we su su support essential workers with, with that type of service to expand it. It is, it is also a huge economic and job uh, creating opportunity, kind of part of the caring economy. So I think we need to build the infrastructure around to get to help folks, you know, get their their GEDs, their AAs, so they can continue to grow in this field, which I think is now finally seems to be getting the traction and attention that is deserved for so many, you know, decades and, and years. So I think that that is a big opportunity. Um, uh, and back to the kind of the, the, the rent moratorium, right? We, we do. We definitely need more time. I think one of the things you know, we became part of Keep Open Housed and that team, you know, supporting uh you know hundreds of, if not thousands of families but huge waiting list but we've also learned that many of these folks you know um the, just the fundamentals of of renting a place is not there right like they don't even have leases right or they do it's you know very like kind of um very kind of primitive things that i think are gonna uh, lead if this moratorium ends to like to make it says it's just we're going to be dealing with tons of evictions, that, and it's going to be really, really hard to keep up. So we need to focus on that as well. I guess for all of you all, this other question here are um, are there lessons to be learned from recovery efforts that were associated with the 0809 um, recession? Um, any insights there around how long it took to recover? how equitable that recovery was? That, that's a really good good question, Brad, because I think, you know, many of us lived through both, obviously, right? And, you know, um, many of the folks that we work with were hit so really hard during the downturn of, you know, eight and nine, and just starting to recover. And then all of a sudden the economy takes off, rents are through the roof, and now displacement, gentrification, all that starts. So we were already kind of dealing with that and just kind of recovering. Now you get like a double whammy 10 years later or whatever. Um, and it's, I think it's taken, it's, it's taken an enormous toll you know, on, on the community. I think it also highlights the role of health, right? Of health, um, the uh, vulnerability of health in these communities and the role of the counties, but also the role of our FQHCs, right? The La Clinica, the Native American Health, the Roots, Asian Health. I mean, they have done just an, an amazing job of really stepping up and meeting the needs during this pandemic, right? And I think they were also, you know, a lifeline for many, many folks during the, the, the recession, or as I call it, depression. It was a recession, the Great Recession if, if you're white. If you're black, Latino, you know, in East Oakland, it was a depression, right? So, um, you know, you just have all these combination of factors, but health, I think, is the one that folks could really rally around as it ties to the well-being of individuals and housing and jobs. So I think we, we can't ignore the role that FQHCs and what, how health is, is going to be such a key role in this recovery. 
Yeah, I think that's a great point, Chris. I guess I would also add that, you know, the recovery of 2008 was really, or maybe the recession itself, really affected homeowners much more than renters in this round, right? The renters in this uh pandemic recession are most impacted. We had predatory lending. We lost black wealth in 2008. And I think the the reality is those households never recovered. Um, So when you think about how much housing was taken off the market from people losing their their homes, how we have not actually uh, rehoused our seniors who in neighborhoods like the Bayview in East Oakland were um, put, lost their houses, um, the only wealth generation they ever had in their families. And so I think there's some animating features that are a bit different in this recovery, but the underlying theme that Black, brown, and indigenous folks continue to be at the bottom, at the tip of the spear when any economic or social shock happens is the reality we have to contend with. And I think, you know, Chris's point around health is is crystal clear that that is an area where we are disproportionately impacted, but it's also around our the income inequality and the lack of wealth um, building opportunities in our communities as well. So I think what what we need to be thinking about is a more holistic set of solutions that, again, wraps our arms around the folks uh, differently who are at the, the lowest income spectrum, right? Now, it's, it's not a universal experience, <laughs> as evidenced by the surplus we have in the state of California, and yet the, the projections around how many unhoused people we will have when we do our next point in time count in 2022. So I think that discrepancy is not sustainable for uh, an equitable recovery. I uh, really just want to echo what what other folks were saying and how, you know, this does really take us back um, to the Great Recession and thinking about how we've been analyzing housing and economic data uh, before the pandemic and that these disparities existed um, beforehand and it, the pandemic pandemic has really only made things worse. And so um, there is an urgency here and we know that people could end up um, in really challenging situations that are difficult to come back from, whether that's, you know, debt or job loss or homelessness. And so I, I hope that the data, along with what we're hearing from the experts, is really the push that folks need to to advance uh, equitable solutions um, that center racial and economic equity. And um, another question here about kind of mental health issues. Uh, what mental health treatment options are still needed to especially help with addressing homeless issues in the region? Well, again, a great question. I, I guess I would posit that mental health um, needs have been unmet for decades, really since the 80s when we began to disinvest in uh, behavioral health services across this country and what we really need is on-demand mental health services for folks who need it. And I think, again, who's impacted by, by, uh, by this crisis? You know, folks associate the needs of mental health and behavioral health services with homeless people. But in fact, we know that this pandemic has infected all of our mental health, our well-being, right? Many folks who need that kind of support don't have access to it. So, you know, we think it's really important for us to be looking at 
programs like Cal AIM and our, our Proposition 63, which is a federal um, piece of legislation that, you know, sort of brings funding into communities around mental health, that has to be commiserate to need. I think that we we have to be able to figure out how to bill Medi-Cal and Medicare for providers to be able to provide on-site behavioral health services in affordable housing developments, for example. So as, as we've all been talking about, we have to get super creative and bring all of our tools to the toolbox. Um, but I think mental health uh, supports are needed across the spectrum, but especially when tied to um, housing and economic supports for people with lower incomes, uh, we are far insufficient in, in supporting the need. No, I definitely support that. Even my staff, like you, get, you have to make sure you met, you you um, highlight the mental health challenges that we're seeing and the investments needed in that area, especially around uh, youth and, and kids in school. The, I think the toll it's taken on them, uh, the distance learning and um, just being able to be you know connected with school or not so I, I think that that is going to be part of like the whole kind of the holistic approach to to this recovery but it is definitely a huge huge challenge and, and one that um i think is it provides a big opportunity for um so, you know support and and thoughtful investment uh sticking with the the question around um homelessness with you for a minute uh to make it is another question here about um how much more pronounced is homelessness now than before the pandemic? Uh, has it gotten better? Uh, is there something that you're optimistic about? Where are we now in relationship to what was already a problem before the pandemic? Well, I, I think looking at Jamila's data sort of confirms that it's not better. Right. We we many of the ways in which we count the number of people experiencing homelessness on, on any given night, the point in time count uh, was suspended for 2020. Um, and so many jurisdictions did not do their biannual counts. Some places did. Santa Clara County um, actually did a count which projected anywhere from 25 to 35 percent increases. So anecdotally, we know that folks are. Um, again, who were precariously housed pre-pandemic are now living in their cars and trying to work and take care of their families. Uh, so I, we don't have exact data because a lot of that data hasn't yet been collected, but I think we can um, surmise that without making sure that people have support to cover their back rent and indebtedness, plus getting back into the workforce to start to earn enough to maintain and take care of their basic needs, it's only the beginning of the homelessness crisis if we don't, if we don't make some drastic changes. And one, as I mentioned earlier, one of our, the Regional Impact Council, which is a group of um, stakeholders from across the Bay Area who worked with us over the last year to come up with this regional action plan, put a line in the sand and said, it is not acceptable for us to continue to allow our neighbors to be unhoused in encampments and on our streets. And that's why they took such a bold action to reduce unsheltered homelessness in the Bay Area by 75% over the next three years. It's going to take acts like that paired with a lot of the things we've been talking about today to really make, um, to, to turn the tide 
on, on who's experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity. Thank you. Just sticking with your um, kind of focus on solutions for a minute. Um, what are some bright spots that you all have seen that kind of give you hope and optimism? Or what are some things that you're seeing happening in community that we think we need to build on uh, as we think about recovery? Um, if I could jump in real quick. So I think one, one of the things that happened is uh, we were able to partner with UCSF and to kind of to bring them over into the Fruitvale in East Oakland to help with, with, with testing and research, right? And so I think hopefully we're going to see these types of, you know, partnerships that you never really imagined before. But the fact that they were to come over, work with us, and they, they, they continue to work with us, work with the county health department, work with all of our local partners, um, and really bring us, um, you know, strong, like, data and research information um, to help us, you know, like, kind of work through the, work through our challenges. So those type of partnerships were amazing. Um, that was amazing. Uh, Dr. Lisa Fernandez, Dr. Christian Vivian-Domingo. And then you have, we also have this collaboration called Resilient Fruitvale, which is like 18, you know, CBOs throughout East Oakland all coming together and basically meeting weekly to address the, the current needs. And these organizations have, some of them are very small, you know, different size but they have all outperformed themselves. It, it has been really amazing acts of humanity, how they punched above their weight, you know, using this conscious metaphor or whatever. But the, the way they have stepped up to meet this challenge and have never kind of left their post, you know, we have to take advantage of that. We, we, we need to grow them. We need to strengthen them. You're, you're developing leaders, BIPOC leaders with these organizations. So I'm really optimistic that folks that normally never maybe work together are gonna, we, we all have to come together, you know, I'll call it uncomfortable partnerships, whatever you may, but I think they're um, they're ripe for investments and because they are performing and they're really meeting the needs in the community at the ground level, whether it's homies empowerment or street level, or I, mean, you, I could just go on and on. But I think um, great acts of humanity that really give me incredible hope that, that we're going you know, to be able to get out of this and move into recovery. Uh, amen. I mean, I, I think what Chris just described is how, how we're going to do it together. Seeing, you know, public-private partnerships um, coming together out of this crisis, um, foundations working with communities to set up recovery funds. I mean, Oakland was a really great example of coming together and realizing that so many of their workers and uh, business owners were extremely low-income business owners and business owners of color and women and putting together resources that were directly targeted to helping them keep their businesses open was such a bright spot to me. Um, we worked on uh, co-founding a, a California um, small business uh, task force that led to the California Rebuilding Fund that provides low-cost loans to small business owners to stay, uh, to maintain their businesses, but also to employ low-income workers. So it's really encouraging to see examples like that. Santa Clara County working with 70 different providers in their county to administer their homelessness prevention work. There are bright spots all throughout the region, the work Chris is doing. And I think what, what is most imaginative about it is that we are, we are not taking no for an answer. Our community is assembling organically. We're assembling uh, 
strategically and trying to leverage the resources that are coming into our community most effectively to have impact. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by it. And then the last thing I'd say, Fred, is it has been critically important to us around including people with lived expertise and experience in the decision making. When you need, when, when folks are so concerned about what's happening in communities, what do, what do people need? The people will tell you what they need. Our work is to make sure we get them what they need so that, in fact, folks can exercise their own agency, resilience, and brilliance to, self, uh, to self-actualize, to actually get what they need to be thriving in their own communities. We don't need a program for everything. We don't need a policy for everything. We need to give folks the tools and the resources that they need to do what they got to do. And I have been very encouraged to see that kind of uh, spirit throughout the Bay Area. That's a good segue to make it to the last question I want to ask you all. We're unfortunately starting to run out of time. What kind of leadership is called for and needed uh, as we think about this moment in the, the kind of um, work that we have to do in order to come out of this? I think you, you, you need to be big and bold. You know, I always kind of tease the mayor. I always call her like uh, Miss Baller, right? Because you know, you got to roll up your sleeve, and this is the time to ball. This is balling time, right? And I think she's been she's been out there. She's been you know really trying to push push the envelope in a lot of ways. And I think you know um, uh, a lot of folks who may have been been in office for a long time, or you know, they're I think they want to be big and bold, but it's it's such a big moment that I think they're they're trying to figure it out. I think the other thing that's happening that I'm seeing. Is, and that we're going to probably continue to see is that there are a lot of young, bright, educated folks that are kind of taking a look at what happened. And maybe they've had losses in their own family and whatever. And like, no, no, we need to change this stuff. And you're going to see a lot of them start positioning themselves to, to take leadership roles in office or whatever the case may be. But uh, I think it's a, a time for, for, for leaders to really take a, you know, a, a hard look at themselves and kind of a gut check and say, hey, you know, how, how am I going to meet this moment? And and we are willing to help in, in every way we can. But I think that's, you know, I think it's really uh, folks, you know, making sure that they, they have what, what it takes to, to meet this moment. Thanks. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's really important to have leaders who are willing to take risks, to not be afraid of accountability, both for themselves and for their colleagues around them. Uh, and leadership to me isn't just policymakers and decision makers. Leadership is building the bench for the people in the community who are gonna make the difference between um, making sure their neighbors are fed and those that aren't, uh, collecting resources in their communities to make sure folks are okay, uh, demanding that our policymakers in our communities get the resources that they need. So I think it's leadership has taken a whole new um, definition from my perspective. I think all gloves are off. We have to be able to not only be bold about what we're trying to accomplish, but be accountable to the outcomes and impact that we need. It's not enough to just state that we want to reduce homelessness. We actually then have to take action and pay attention to the racial disparities that exist, for example. Are we actually seeing fewer black and brown people end up homeless? Full stop. If we're not, then you're not doing your job. You're, you're, not, you're not being accountable to this critical issue and crisis. And so from my perspective, leadership is being unafraid to push the political and public will to do what it takes to improve the outcomes for our community. Anything to add, Jamila? 
So maybe just quickly, uh, I know we're close to time. I echo what others have said, and just to focus on leaders that focus on those most in need. We know that policies that benefit vulnerable groups often end up benefiting all of us. So just wanted to lift that up. Those really aren't my words. That's, you know, the curb cut effect. Angela Glover Blackwell, founder and residence at PolicyLink. It was uh, published in 2017, but it's so relevant now. And um, I'll leave it there. Well, you all, we've hit the end of our time. Uh, I want to once again thank Tamika Moss, Chris Iglesias, Jamila Henderson. Thank you all for your, your insights, your wisdom, your data, uh, and most of all, uh, your optimism. Uh, we need a lot of that uh, headed into the next phase of work. Again, I'm Fred Blackwell, the San Francisco Foundation. Thank you all to uh, thank you to you all for joining us. Uh, this program of the Commonwealth Club of California is now adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 